implicit bias gives us one explanation on why racial inequality, racial injustice persists even when we don't want it to. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this episode, Jonathan and I are very excited to share our interview with Jerry Kong, Distinguished Professor of Law, UCLA's founding vice chancellor of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and nationally recognized expert in implicit bias. But first, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So ahead of this conversation with Jerry Kong, I've been thinking a lot about implicit bias um, and whether people know what it is um, and or and whether people uh, – because it, it's a buzzword, right? Like it's like microaggressions, mm-hmm. implicit bias, like right. all the anti-racism. Like those are like sort of buzzwords kind of. Um, but like we know what implicit bias is, right, April? Like we have – I could give you examples of it. You can give me an example of when you've been the victim of implicit bias, right? Sure can. You know, to me implicit bias is the sort of proven um, notion. It's not really a notion because there's so much data on this that it's 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 proven – that we all as human beings categorize things in certain ways. And based on our own experiences, we categorize certain things, particularly race in certain ways, depending on our own race. Mm -hmm. Um, And so white people inherently in this country um, on the whole, not everyone, but most the overwhelming majority without knowing it have um, implied or, or, or subconscious, negative thoughts toward black people um and because of so many things because of the way that the media portrays black people the news uh the way that all you know villains in movies are black you know uh i I know we're going to talk about this with jerry but um yeah it's this thing that like you don't know you have I, i just i know people think that they know what implicit bias is, but I don't think most people know that they have it, you know? Well, let's give some examples. Okay, Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So a couple come to mind for me that I've experienced um, just sort of generally in my life. Um, One, I think of when I was younger, um, in the school district we grew up in, uh, sixth grade was the first time you leave elementary school, so you're in a new building um, with new teachers and new administration. Um, so when I went, started in sixth grade, they assign you to classes um, and a different placement of classes, meaning uh, advanced placement or not. So little, little April Joy went into sixth grade as a straight A student and realize on day one that I was put in the classes for children who struggle with their education. Mm. Um, So the lower level math and reading classes in particular. Why? Well, I mean, who knows? I imagine that they uh, took a look at me and said, oh, well, all right, she'll probably need additional help. We'll put her in these classes regardless of my, uh, 
one, my white mother, my straight A's, um, my uh, high remarks from all of my previous teachers. I was put in the um, in the classes were, uh, for students who needed additional support and help. Right. Um, who were also often the problem students. Exactly. In terms of behavior. Uh, or perceived as the as the problem students. Yeah, right, exactly. right. That was big um, so that's air quotes. One, yeah, that's 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 one example. Um, another, um, it happened more recently. I was talking with um, a friend of mine, um, and friend is in quotes for sure. Um, they asked me if I was talking about you and Jubilee um, and our childhood. They asked me if we all had the same father. Right. Um, and like, I, I paused and I smiled and said, why, of course we do. Why wouldn't we? Right. And they is, oh, I was just, I was just wondering. I just, I don't know. You know, I was just, I'm just wondering. Okay. Moving on. Right. Um, people assume that black and brown children come from homes with uh, multiple sets of parents. But it's, it's, it's like they wouldn't even think to ask that to a white person. Mm-hmm. And that's what the implicit bias is, right? Like they didn't even think that they wouldn't ask a white person that, you know? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually, I, yeah, I, one good example that comes to mind for me is, I, and actually, this isn't a real world example, but I just read a study of this, and it's a, um, it's people's ability to, so it's about resting bitch face, which is a hilarious term, I think, even though I have problems with the B word, obviously. Um, there's no male equivalent for it. Sorry. Um, it was about people's ability or inability to discern when someone was smiling. Um, and so they asked, they have a, they had like a face on the screen that was either black or white. And that had a, a, a straight face that slowly over 30 seconds or so turned to a smile. And the participants in the study were supposed to click a little clicker when they, saw the face as smiling right um same exact thing but for a black face and a white face it took the white people longer to see that to to consider a black face smiling and smiling at them than it did a white face so that was exactly the same does that make sense yeah totally so it's like it is so when you see why why do black people ever smile why does everyone always look they don't smile in pictures sure but also, you don't see us as smiling when we're smiling. So the fact that you, as a white person, have in your mind this thing, this understanding that that you're judging black people for not for always looking upset. One, we have every reason to be upset. <laughs> Two, you literally can't perceive our smiles as quickly as you can. It's identical, literally, in this thing that just changed the skin color of the of the cartoon face that was on the screen. You know, like. Right. And I think uh, part of that can be uh, brought back to white people having to first overcome their bias idea of black people not being as happy or friendly right. or right. welcoming as white people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, ex- you know, and so, I mean, but, but a re- you know, in terms of real world examples of implicit bias, it's like, you know, um, <laughs> where do I start? Um, I, I, you know, being uh anything that any of the examples of everyday racism that you hear um 
us talk about, but us being black people, being followed around in stores, uh, being uh, questioned about uh, where we got our car from. Like, right, like I drive a car that's like sort of a nice car. I don't know. Like, and people often ask me um, if it's mine and if I where how I got it. <laughs> um, it's those all of those things are fueled by implicit bias, because when you ask those people if they're racist or say, hey, that's racist. They'd say, oh, my God, what? Like, no, of course. I'm just wondering where you got your car because you don't see that you wouldn't ask a white person that. You don't see that. Yeah. I get asked, is that your dog? Right. Well, I'm walking her, aren't I? (laughs) Yeah, I had to ask that, too, which is, like, such a strange, like, do you go up to most people and ask them if it's their dog that they, their dog that they're walking? Am I a dog walker? Have I right. stolen this dog? Like right. what? I don't, yeah. Or, Another one I get is with dogs because and you know I can keep going on this. Is do you know what breed she is? Oh, I it's love like, that. <laughs> it's like uh, if I were walking my dog in a suit and tie, and I was a white guy with like a Clark Kent haircut and glasses, would you ask me if I knew what breed my dog was? Right. No. The question obviously is first of all, don't speak to me. Second, right. <laughs> what breed is your dog? Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I get right. the one I love all the time is who's your favorite rapper, as opposed to what kind of music do you listen or, to, or or do you right, 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 or even like, I'll even accept do you like rap, right? Like, right. if I ask people if they like other types of music, I guess probably most people probably uh, assume black people like rap, so I could see that being problematic too. But yeah, what kind of music do you like? Like, <laughs> so. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So it's these all of these little things that, again, like black people just deal with. We just deal with it. And we mm-hmm. it's not like we don't notice it. Well, of course, we notice it because black people don't do it to us. You know, like. Yeah. Oh, and I just thought of another good one I get so often. What, is what? that your real hair? Oh. Or or even is that your hair? Right. Well, would you As if ever, I've scalped ever, a stranger ever, ever, ever. and place their head on top of mine ever ask a white person is that your hair yeah it's you know like stuff like that that people just don't even yeah so all that is to say these are some good examples of 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 implicit bias in real in the real world um and in real life and it just i think the thing that i don't that i get stuck with is that i so clearly know what implicit bias is so do you um but we also talk about race a lot for a living um i think a lot of white people know what implicit bias is but think since the word bias is in it um that they that it doesn't apply to them since they're not racist you know or they're not um they're not they're they know about implicit bias so they can combat it you know and it's like right sort of you have but you only have you have to you have to be aware of your specific biases and against whom before you know that you can work on combating it because the whole un, the whole point of it is that you don't know it exists right so um yeah i mean i assume i'm assuming we're going to talk about this with with jerry kong a lot but um i just it is just i wanted to provide some real world examples of where implicit bias sort of acts out but yeah also just just remind people that i can say this clearly and without qualification listeners you have implicit biases you have 
subconscious, unconscious biases, period, end of thought. Um, and so it's about finding them out and identifying them. There's all sorts of tests you can take. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, and, and only then, once you not only admit that you, of course, you do have biases, but identify them truly, um, can you actually make changes in your everyday life? When you have a rapper in your mind that you want to ask a black person if they like, you might think about that before and say, would you ask a white person if they like this? And if so, think how often the black person gets asked if they like rap and get to it another way. So it's not annoying to us, you know, <laughs> ask about what kind of music I like and you might be surprised, you know? Yeah. You'll definitely be surprised if you ask me what kind of music I like, you know? So let's actually uh, share our interview with the expert on, on this topic, implicit bias and funnily enough, your former boss, uh, yeah. Jerry Kong. Well, hi, Jerry. Welcome to uh, Black Ann. We're very happy to talk to you today. I'm delighted to be here. So we'll we'll jump right in. Um, we like to start broad for our listeners um, so they can get sort of an understanding of where our conversation uh, might lead and the things we'll talk about. Uh, so, you know, I've listened to you, you know, online talk a lot about implicit bias. Um, it's sort of a, a, it's a big word phrase that we hear a lot lately. I'm wondering if you could Explain to our listeners what that is, why it's important, uh, especially now, um, and and more particularly, how does it play into building equity? Uh, a great set of uh, first uh, sort of introductory questions. Um, you know, I'm a lawyer by training, so I like to uh, pick at each of the words. So implicit bias. Uh, well, you have to first ask what's bias, and uh, and then second, what makes it implicit as opposed to, I guess, presumably explicit. Um, so bias. Uh, bias just means that somehow you're away from some neutral point. It's hard to know what a neutral point ought to be, what zero ought to be, or what average ought to be. But bias means that somehow you're off that neutral point. It could be on anything, really. Any scale could be biased because it calls you lighter than you are or heavier than you are. That's a bias on weight. But here we're talking about bias in the form of probably something like an attitude or a stereotype towards a, a group of people, say black folks or Asian folks, or to emphasize uh, intersectionality, Latinas. So bias just means that you're somehow off of whatever you think to be neutral or average or whatever zero fair and square might be in kind of how you feel. Uh, that's how I think of an attitude, an overall feeling towards a group, uh, or maybe in a stereotype kind of uh, generalization about tendencies about a group of people. That's what I mean by bias. The reason why implicit is really important is that it's doing different work um, to call it implicit. Um, often people think implicit is the opposite of explicit. When people think of the explicit, they think, oh, it must be really graphic, like an explicit movie or explicit language. I think that's actually a, um, an understandable, but a um, but a sort of an unfortunate um a misreading of what implicit uh, versus explicit ought to mean. It's not that uh, implicit is always subtle and little in magnitude, whereas explicit is always graphic and high in magnitude. I think it's better uh, to understand these terms as 
uh, how you know whether or not you have the bias. So implicit should really be understood as not directly introspectively introspectively accessible. I, I know that's a bunch of words, but what <laughs> I mean by that is um, that uh, it, you close your eyes and you ask yourself, what do I really feel about this group of people, about like Muslims uh, or about, uh, about the trans community? And you come up with an answer and that answer through this kind of call and response technique of just pinging your brain and getting an answer back, that answer is either uh, wrong or incomplete. That's what we mean by implicit. Explicit, by contrast, means that it's actually directly uh, accessible uh, simply by asking yourself. So if I just ask you, hey, do you really like deep dish pizza? You ask yourself, well, you know, I grew up outside of Chicago, Illinois. I love deep dish pizza. I ask myself, do I love deep dish pizza? And I go, hell yes, I love deep dish pizza. I have a very positive attitude towards deep dish pizza. Uh, that's an explicit attitude. I ask my brain. My brain gives an answer back. I'm not trying to be politically correct. They're not a bunch of New Yorkers with the greasy pizza <laughs> around me, kind of harassing me, giving me the eye. I'm saying, hell yes, deep dish pizza, I love it, love it. That is an explicit attitude because I asked myself, I got the answer back, and I shared it with you. Uh, an implicit attitude might be something different where, again, I ask uh, myself, and then I, the answer I get back is either incomplete or I just don't even know. I have no access to it. So I apologize for going on at such a great length, uh, but I really want to think about implicit bias as really an attitude or a stereotype that somehow veers off of some zero or neutral point that you honestly don't know that you have, and you can't figure it out just being honest with yourself and asking. That's what implicit bias is. It makes sense to me that, you know, that this is something that uh, is, is, a, is a hugely important issue when it comes to race and equity. Um, and that's what we, <clears throat> excuse me, that's what we talk about a lot on this podcast is, you know, how can we build a better society where race is not it's just not a thing that that uh, affects people in the way that it does today in a negative way. And so all that in mind, this implicit bias that you're talking about that I assume most people have, or at least some people have, right. how, how, did, how do you see that in sort of your larger vision of, of helping fix these institutional and sort of societal issues, equity issues? Yeah. And again, you did ask these other really important questions about what roles does it play and why is it important, especially right now? Um, and um, uh, let me turn to those uh, important uh, questions. But all that I'm saying is there's this concept uh, that some yeah. smart folks uh, have created, right, or have suggested might exist. They'd have to measure it and prove it up. But suppose someone says, hey, look, I, I got this idea. I, I think we got junk in our heads that we don't even know that we have. It's not that we're lying to others just to be politically correct or to fit in. It, it, we're just mysteries to ourselves. We just don't know a lot about ourselves. Mm. Um, maybe we're in denial. We just have poor access. And so some smart scientists, I actually know who these scientists are, uh, imagine uh, there is this thing called implicit bias. And then your question becomes important. Like, why is that important? I, I want to say there are at least two reasons why it's super important. Number one, um, it helps us if, it, if this thing is real, like if, 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 there, if it's really a thing and you can measure it and show that it has an impact in the world, the first thing is that it shows why, in part, I want to underscore in part, racial injustice continues even when most of us don't want it to, right? So this hmm. is like the perennial problem, like 
why does it continue? Why is racial hierarchy uh, that fixed in our system? You know, we have no real right. sense of history, but it's like 50 years ago we changed stuff. Uh, 250 years ago we changed stuff. It's all in some distant past. I realize now that we're constantly reminded that that is uh, that is a, a caricatured vision of reality. But especially right. before maybe I don't know four years ago uh, in a prominent national election four years ago, it was more <laughs> a story we told ourselves, especially around people who had like advanced degrees like we all want to do the right thing we're all doing the right thing why is racial injustice so darn hard uh, when we don't uh, when we don't want it to continue so i think implicit bias gives us one explanation on why racial inequality racial injustice uh persists even when we don't want it to and again as i said before it's not the only reason but it is one reason the second thing that's important is actually uh, uh um, is that I think it changes how skeptical uh, people of reasonably goodwill uh, respond to claims uh, to fix society. Uh, mm. Many claims for racial, uh, for fixing kind of racial injustice, oftentimes focus on um, really, really bad things that were done either in the past or by others more recently. But almost always, it's a combination of they did it. And it was back then. So if you think mm -hmm. about slavery, for example, like, you know, modern American citizens like right now, like no one actually had, uh, you know, slaves, no one else, no one actually had chattel slavery. And so they say it's back then. Uh, even if you have like uh, really bad people now, like people marching in Charlottesville, uh, screaming blood and soil or clearly racist cops, uh, people think, oh, even though that's happened recently, that's them, not me. So almost always the claim is you should do more for racial justice because of bad people, uh, them, uh, especially yeah. back then. But any time you appeal for change that is really focusing on them and then means that you're not saying uh, it's me right now. Um, so I, in my view, if you say that other people are doing bad things or other people did bad things in the past and um, and you're indirectly benefiting uh, from it, that provides somewhat of a motivation for people to help fix the system. But I don't think it's actually that robust. And I think when people are themselves strapped for cash, when people themselves are competing uh, in hyper-competitive um, global tournaments uh, within uh, you know sort of a capitalist economy, I don't think it goes that far. And what the implicit bias story um, allows you to do is to say, it's not just them and then, it's actually me right now. Like I could actually measure implicit bias in my own mind. And even though it's different from every explicit commitment, every convenience story I tell myself, the truth is it's actually in my own house. It's in my own brain. It's influencing what I do with my own hands. It's actually on me. And so I, I actually think that once you own up to the fact that it's a taint that's actually in your own body, that it's actually a consequence, obviously, of growing up in, in a society that's deeply unequal and that it's actually in your own mind. I think people get um, a different motivation and a different um, almost a hunger to address these problems if they are directly part of the problem. They can't just pawn it off on others or disempower. Hmm. It You so often come across people who are either shocked 
or uh, so strongly deny seeing these uh, biases in themselves. Why do you think that is? It seems like it would be a, oh, of course, yes, I have that. Um, and I think that way. And of course, we all do. Why do you think people have such a hard time accepting that, you know, they are inherently biased? Hey, so uh, that's a great question. I, I Look, um, I think it's because um, the concept of implicit bias is quite is deeply threatening for a lot of people. And, and I get it that, April, you just said, like, we should all recognize that we're fundamentally human. It would be shocking if we didn't have baggage and biases that we've just picked up along the way of living in uh, a modern media culture. And I totally agree with you. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, it's just an ordinary feature of, in some ways, uh, the fact that we think with brains that uses categories and uh, we have to actually make judgments on the basis of categories and it's not especially surprising that we have these kinds of associations associated with all of our categories including categories about human beings but let's remember that it can be deeply deeply threatening to one's self-concept even though we're talking about again bias and trying to kind of deflate its you know sort of um, emotional uh, sensitivity by just calling it just, just some deviation from a, a neutral point. I mean, bias sometimes is read as, oh, you're prejudiced. And people are often terrified about what that means. And their self-concept is just the opposite. I am not a racist. I view myself as fair and square. I'm not a sexist. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not homophobic. Uh, and that's core to their identities. So when you provide facts that actually chip away at that mm. self-conception, it could be deeply threatening. Uh, and uh, I get it for a lot of people, it's hard to appreciate, but it turns out we all tend to have some of these uh, vulnerabilities, um, uh, not the least of which is people who are, you know, again, th there are many people who are on the left uh, who actually have these implicit biases uh, and they're shocked. And now you might think, well, maybe those are just white liberals and of course uh, they have them. But I want to suggest, you know, if we get really down to brass tacks, you know, these are things that influence uh, many of us. You must remember the doll studies, right? The, the heartbreaking mm -hmm. studies that were cited in Brown versus Board of Education by um, Dr. Clark, where, you know, and again, roughly it was giving to young black um, uh, kids, you know, either a white doll or a black doll to pick and having the kid play with them, describe them, who's the good one, who's the bad one, etc. And, you know, you saw painful, like deeply painful um, evidence of internalization of very negative stereotypes about uh, the group that, uh, you know, one belonged to. And, um, and, you know, the painful truth of it is, you know, on the, on the implicit bias um, test uh, that is best uh, known and most often used, the implicit attitude, excuse me, the implicit association test, um, the black-white attitudes, um, attitudinal preference um, is, you know, deeply disturbing, but it shows that most people have a preference uh, for whites over blacks. It turns out that African-Americans, right, black folks are the only people who have no uh, b uh, preference in favor of whites or in favor of uh, blacks. But that's a bell curve. So about 30 percent, roughly speaking, mm. of uh, African-Americans themselves have an attitudinal preference in favor of white people over black people, at least as measured by this test. And the reason why I just brought that up uh, is to 
just embrace the complexity and some of the pain. If you go up to a black person, have them take the IAT, and they find out that they have a mild preference for white people over uh, black people, uh, um, how is that going to make them potentially feel? Right. Would mm-hmm. you also be in denial? And so like, what is this stupid test? I just hit some keys and now you're telling me that I've internalized all this junk? I totally reject it. I'll give you one other really funny example, maybe to leaven the um, the mood. It's been heavy so far, Jerry. <laughs> I, know, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, no, I it's the reality, to, though. You have it's to reality. laugh or cry or, in truth, always both. Right. Right. You know this. Um, right. But... Um, you know, there's this great story uh, t- uh, told by the, you know, the starters of uh, this kind of work, uh, Tony, uh, uh, Tony Greenwald, who invented the IAD, um, Implicit Association Test, Majin Banaji, who uh, worked on that with him. Um, uh, and they share a story where early on they used to get hate mail when they released the IAT uh, from various sources, including some from like a fiercely pro-white neo-Nazis who are explicitly completely pro-white, but they really didn't register enough explicit attitude or preference in favor of white people. And then they yelled at them saying, this is not, this can't be be right, because I should have more attitude (laughs) or preference for white people. How dare you call me insufficiently racist? So like, again, you know, I don't know what to take uh, from that outlier, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, even we, even those of us who view ourselves as really woke and humble and all the things that we ought to be, um, we have core self-conceptions uh, of who we are. And when we find inconvenient facts that start dismantling that, it can be very, very threatening. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of, you know, the power, frankly, uh, of implicit bias uh, and, and and part of, again, the risk. Um, and um, and it, we should just we should not be surprised that, again, uh, these kinds of um, these kinds of kind of, I don't know, gradual enlightenments on on our journey towards, you know, just, you know, uh, more honest self-reflection can be quite disturbing to people uh, along that path. That makes sense. I feel like I'm going to definitely steal the neo-Nazi story and use that later. <laughs> uh, it's a good story. I know. I, I can't believe I've never heard. You never told me that one. Um, so, okay. So, so I want to pick your brain uh, for a little bit about some of the um, sort of the things that we're seeing in our society uh, over the last few months. Um, as I, uh, you know, full disclosure to our listeners, uh, Jerry is my former uh, boss uh, at working at UCLA. He's now a, a law professor at UCLA, as we as we mentioned um, in the intro to this. But but we haven't spoken since a lot of a lot of things have gone down. So you left you left your role right as um, right in sort of the midst of the summer as COVID was uh, was and sort of still is in its heyday. So. Um, I want to talk to you about COVID, Jerry, and about the um, the sort of issues that are that we're seeing come along with um, a disease that is being so sort of overtly uh, linked to Chinese Americans and Chinese people um, generally, uh, China specifically, um, and the sort of larger Asian American community in the country. Um, you know, you have the president who is calling this. Kung flu and China flu and Wuhan virus and um, how, how does how are these biases and how do how do 
you know, these things we've been talking about so far on the on the pod, how are they affected when something like this happens? And and yeah, I guess if you could just sort of talk on on that for for a little bit, I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Yeah, I you know I think um, I, you know it's been almost hard to believe, but uh, and, and deeply disheartening to see examples of you know of various forms of you know hate crimes, whether you 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 know epithets as not being that big of a deal, but actual physical altercations where people are hitting people, pushing people, other kinds of things. Uh, Asian Americans, in part because they are blamed somehow for uh, causing COVID nineteen, um, and um, and. And, you know, again, it, it's easy to think about Asian Americans, including East Asians, principally as, quote unquote, the model minority who don't have to worry about anything. And I don't mean to suggest at all that there are uh, always, um, you know, equivalencies and experiences uh, in the variegated experiences of folks of color. But Asian Americans have had to deal with hate crimes and hate violence for most of their history uh, here in the United States, uh, starting, you know, in the 1850s. Um, and. When I think about uh, kind of the explicit political atmosphere, the immediate thing that I focus on is, again, the exacerbation of um, uh, hate crimes uh, against Asian Americans. And the reason why I'm focusing on explicit uh, political conflict and framing, uh, which is, again, stirred up by political leaders, is that uh, – is that I, I also want to make sure that your listeners understand that there is a beautiful continuity between implicit phenomena, explicit phenomena, structural phenomena, and that any attempt to make sort of either or movements that you could only understand racism as implicit phenomena or explicit or structural uh, – you know, it just forces us to be more narrow in our thinking that is uh, necessary. They're all interconnected. Um, and I think the rise of sort of hate crimes um, with a, a particular framing and repetition about COVID-19 is a great example. Mm -hmm. So so right now we have, again, a, an amped up political environment where for various reasons, uh, politicians are trying to blame uh, China and attribute this as a virus that comes from China. It's their fault. They could have stopped it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's translating to, again, violence against Asians uh, for all the predictable sort of reasons that uh, that racism does its work, right? So number one, for example, is that we, you know, Asians have always been viewed as uh, forever foreign. It's very hard mm. to understand them as fully American. They always seem like sojourners. That's why still periodically I get complimented on my English and and mm. and they're it still happens, not that often, but still happens. And so the idea is that Asians are foreign. It is also true that uh, as a matter of law, like most of us were not allowed to actually come to the United States until post-1965. As a matter of law, uh, we were all, uh, until essentially 1952, uh, we were not allowed to naturalize and become U.S. citizens because we were uh, racially uh, not white or black uh, or of African descent. So by force of law and history, we were outsiders. It's only post-65 you let America let many of us in in any great numbers, uh, and we're always viewed as foreign. So it, it's kind of once you activate the foreign stereotype by talking about it as Kung Flu, Wuhan, China, this other kind of place, then it really exacerbates this in-group, out-group dichotomy. Like we are America. Mm. 
we are a quote-unquote white America, they are others, right? Evil Chinese people uh, infected with virus and uh, dangerous. And so it's that in-group, out-group that's being actually stoked in very dangerous ways. It's ordinary work that politicians have always done to their uh, advantage, but that's what we see out here. Now, how does all of that play out implicitly? Well, here's the thing. Even if you think it's silly, uh, and saying, oh, come on. I mean, a virus is just uh, attacking our biology completely uh, uh, without regard uh, to how we draw ethnic or racial lines, you know, the influence of some mutation that came through Italy and New York, that that's actually uh, far more um, infectious. You can talk about it scientifically, but a constant drumbeat in the media um, that actually marks Chinese as the other and marks, again, Chinese people as potentially threatening, uh, actually has impacts not only at an explicit level, but an implicit level. So if we constantly associate an East Asian face with either threat or sort of conniving dangerous, that's going to leave an imprint that's going to alter people's interactions even without their knowing it in implicit ways. So on the one hand, this is an explicit story. It's an explicit story that is driven right. by uh, politics, all that stuff. But you should never assume that explicit moves don't have implicit consequences that run for run in unintended ways or hard to predict ways over long periods of time. And it builds on this kind of implicit cache of kind of stereotypes associated with Asians as, again, threatening, essentially, you know, uh, foreign as kind of a dehumanized horde of others that might be tainted, that might be willing to, again, do devious things to actually win in hyper-competitive tournaments. Mm -hmm. All of these things get mixed together, and that's a dangerous group. So we should not be uh, at all surprised as um, um, to see, again, hate crimes, uh, again, uh, happening against Asians in part uh, because of this environment. Go uh, last thing I'll say is uh, Gordon Alport, a great uh, you know, psychologist uh, early uh, in uh, probably around, somewhere around, around the 1950s, said uh, violence is always an outgrowth of subtler states of mind. And I think it's true. Um, and it is, again, the subtle dehumanizations, the subtle uh, blaming, oh, you invaded my turf, you're not fully human, you caused me wrong, uh, I will scapegoat you. That leads to, again, uh, you know, violence against the other. Can you talk about the surge in race, in the racial justice movement that we're seeing, seeing over the past few months? How are these times different from maybe 50, 60 years ago? And why now? You know, I think far, obviously, the, the base layer of uh, how, we're, how at least, you know, how, how the whole world is trying to uh, um, respond to, again, a global pandemic. Um, uh, and then add on to that base layer, again, uh, again, certain murders of uh, black people uh, by the police. Um uh, triggering, again, this moment uh, that we're all trying to make sense of. And uh, I want to say a couple of things. One, uh, in many ways, it kind of it does feel like a unique moment. Uh, but then the skeptic and kind of the, you know, the, the scholar in me says, like, yeah, but yeah, as you said, like, we've seen this before. You know, even at, in Los Angeles, in 1992, Los Angeles burned because 
the four police officers that um, beat the hell out of uh, Rodney King uh, got acquitted. Um, you know, about 27 years before that, like by 1965, uh, you had the Watts riots. So, like, cities have burned uh, because of the pervasive and persistent truth of racial inequality, where, like, fellow Americans, you know, black and brown Americans feel like there's absolutely no hope and society refuses to respect the fundamental humanity of us. And at some point, things, um, there will be protests, cities will burn. Uh, we've been through that. And so a part of me wonders, like in, you know, three years from now, hopefully your podcast is still going uh, and we talk, <laughs> will we have seen this moment as truly unique or will we say, yeah, it was like 92, it was like 65. It was like, again, whatever happens apparently every 27, 28 years um, in these national reckonings that do some things, but in truth, um, I, I'm not quite sure that we as a country uh, met the moment uh, and uh, rose up to the challenge. Um, so I'm not sure. That's my point is it, it does feel unique, but frankly, I'm not sure. And now number two is that I would love it uh, to be a genuine reckoning where we think about things. And I, I, in all honesty, I've never been um, in a moment where both uh, the uh, the conversations, at least in kind of, you know, elite, uh, you know, management spaces, elite institutions, whether they be universities or, or corporations or law firms, is so targeted on qu questions of, again, uh, anti-black uh, mm. uh, bias about policing, about intersectionality, about systemic racism. Like, you know, people rarely can ever define what structural systemic means, but surely it comes out in the first five sentences uh, of any kind of engagement on this. So there is a certain kind of intense focus that, um, that all of us uh, hope earnestly is not just uh, kind of just, uh, you know, pressure valve uh, going off where, again, equilibrium is quickly reset. So let's hope uh, for that. Uh, and I do think that in some ways, um, um, I would love to have a beautiful convergence where this need for us uh, to actually take uh, you know, take a, 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 a more painfully accurate stock of ourselves leads us to kind of put in certain kinds of hooks, diversity, inclusion, structures or methods, policies, practices, procedures, um, like I tried to do when I was helping uh, run the university to try to get us to a better place such that even when we forget two or three years from now, right? The cynic in me says in two or three years, this will just have been a moment that passed that nevertheless, we put in hooks into the system such mm. that, uh, again, things are just going, the, the new normal operates in a slightly different way. Uh, I know that this kind of reference to hooks or, you know, little uh, changes in procedures or little uh, default rules uh, is a little opaque, but that's generally a strategy I've used to actually change institutional behavior, to use a moment, catalyze kind of uh, inspiration to uh, change and be who we claim to be, and then uh, translate all of that kind of will or excitement or motivational curiosity to new policies, procedures, practices, structures that kind of run on autopilot uh, that do their good work regardless of whether people remember why they were set up in the first place uh, and still have the faith. That's interesting. So, uh, you know, we are, you mentioned sort of institutional behaviors and, and the sort of uh, 
the notion that like oh, that a lot more folks, I guess, you know, in the private and public sectors are sort of engaging with these ish diversity, quote, quote unquote, diversity and inclusion issues. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about more about that and sort of you mentioned, you know, your old office, the office that I currently work in um, with, uh, you know, at UCLA and, 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 you know, there are everyone listening to this that works at a, an organization, a larger organization in this country has been sat in on a diversity and inclusion seminar, a mandatory training, or, a, you know, um, who knows where the diversity and inclusion person is at their, you know, whatever, law firm, school, pick the company. Um, why, why it's so widespread, it's diversity and inclusion training is such a pervasive thing that happens around the country even more now um, with the rise of Black Lives Matter and and in the wake of George Floyd, we're seeing all types of things pop up. Why why haven't they have they worked in the past at, at other sort of institutions? Not just I mean I won't ask you to talk about other colleges uh, just because that could be awkward I guess, but uh, to, you know think about other organizations around the around the country and the world, the Comcasts of the world, the AT and T's, the Netflix. How are they you know they have diversity and inclusion office or offices. Are those are those organizations doing good work, building changes within their institutions? That's a good questions to ask, um, uh, because um, you know we could just talk about you know the uh, if people are doing stuff, whether they be trainings or these new like committees or structures. Right. Do they actually uh, work? And, and anytime you ask that really hard question, do they really work? You got to ask the next question like, well, how would you know if they worked? What the heck are you measuring? Uh, and is it really, you know, almost then immediately people talk, well, let's just measure demographics and demographic diversity. Although in, in truth, I mean, that's both hard to move and um, and it's kind of a crude way to measure lots of things like inclusion right. uh, because you can have decent amounts of diversity. It might say nothing about inclusion. You can have a decent amount of diversity and have gross pay inequity. Uh, so that says nothing about equity. In any event, these are good questions. Um, but in some ways, you're, you're asking, look, there's been this increase of diversity and inclusion work, whether they be in the form of trainings or structures or, or committees or offices. Uh, and, there, and, and to the question, do they work? Uh, we have to ask, well, how would you even know if they work? You've got to decide what it is that you want to measure. And I think all of those are things that um, the whole industry or the whole uh, area does relatively poorly. And so think about like where we are in the stage in the, in the evolution of uh, things. I, I mean, in some sense, um, even just the willingness to get, quote, training or education is in some ways, uh, you know, a fairly recent phenomenon, the level of training uh, and, and education that people are willing to take now, it's actually much higher than it was even five years ago. I mean, frankly, even five months ago, but certainly compared to five years ago or certainly 10 years ago. So to the extent that there is this kind of movement to learn more, is that a phenomenon that's existed for 50 years or is it really closer to five years, five to 10 years? And maybe it's closer to five or, or 10. So what, the thing that I want to emphasize is that it's a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, now, in trying to figure out whether it's worked, I, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, misconceptions uh, about what we expect quote unquote training to do. Um, recently, I've been just calling it, avoid uh, avoid even calling it training because it's really yeah. education, not training. Because I think about training, 
like marathon training. What does marathon training look like? You got to just run a lot. Apparently I have lousy knees. I don't run, but the idea is that if you're do, engaged in marathon training, presumably you're doing some cardio, <laughs> like you're actually running, <laughs> maybe stretching at least. Um, you would never, uh, you would never ever consider watch sitting down and watching an hour long video really well done about the history of marathons, what marathons do to your body, why marathon running is good for you and society, how it might be green. I don't know, extend your lifespan. <laughs> Watching an hour of that uh, live or over Zoom and thinking, wow, this person just killed it. Like I didn't want to even attend this thing on marathons, but it was a really good documentary on marathons. Thumbs up uh, and like getting killer reviews. You're smiling, you're laughing. He's like, oh, I didn't know that about fast twitch muscles. Oh, <laughs> got all the vocabulary. It's like you, you, you've gotten so much marathon education. You can, again, the next day, if I ask you, okay, now run the marathon, you're going to be as bad as you were the day before. So let's just let's just be clear. Education itself is not training, right? Education can do lots of good things, including again, you know, building a, a common language and common vocabulary. It also oftentimes signals significance and importance, which is part of the value structures uh, by which we set up a culture within an institution. But we should never confuse education for actual change in behavior. You can watch a lot of YouTube videos on running a marathon, on you know, doing a deadlift, uh, on you know, on um, you know how to cook, how, how to how to bake bread. But the first time you do it, you're gonna mess it all up. You're gonna pull your back. The bread's gonna burn. It's not gonna rot. Like let's let's just understand what education is supposed to do. So if we measure education by saying, okay, one year later, have your has your board of directors numbers changed? A part of you have to ask, of course it hasn't. Uh, the second question is like, why would you assume that it would simply because there was really good education? Now, the other thing that I'll say is, um, uh, even I give a lot of educations and I do this for a reason. And here, here's, I think the other real important impact. The point of the education, besides creating common language, besides signaling that the people in charge actually care, is the actual content of the education. Might the content of the education actually motivate people uh, who are smart and skeptical, um, but of goodwill, to actually engage in analysis and redesign of policies, procedures, and practices with and incentives, right, within their own institutions to do a better job. And the reason why I spend a lot of time engaging in this kind of education is because I believe that the implicit story by implicit bias story that I tell, which is evidence-based, data-driven, uh, very clear without exaggerating the consequences actually creates this aha moment within the audience where smart and skeptical people suddenly realize about two thirds of the way in through the education, they say, holy smokes, I might be that guy. I didn't think I was that guy, but like I'm listening hey. to the speaker and there's all this evidence like, and I'm not doing anything as a precaution or checks. I'm just calling it as I see it, uh, picking people on my team as I want to. 
giving out grades and pay bonuses as I think the people just kind of deserve it. Holy smokes, I'm that yeah. guy. And once uh, once people get that light bulb moment, I think people are willing to actually then um, kind of um, you know roll up their sleeves and engage in the much harder and frankly more important work of institutional redesign. So I think that's the other thing that it could possibly do, but that depends on both the education, uh, whether it's per per persuasive, whether it's persuasive principally emotionally versus intellectually or some combination, whether it hits a particular audience that has the juice necessary to engage in institutional reform, all these things. But I think that's why uh, education remains important. So I, I've talked on a great length, but you're just asking all this stuff, is it working? How do we know? I want to suggest some things work, some things don't. Uh, okay. we, would all, we should always be, we should just get, ask second level questions about like, well, like when you ask, uh, you know, does it work? Like, what are you measuring it by? Why would you think it would work in that way, et cetera, et cetera. So we can get sophisticated many levels over and we should. Okay. Um, the final thing I'll say is that I do think um, that, uh, again, once you motivate people to engage in serious self-criticism and analysis and redesign uh, their default processes, that that redesign has huge consequences over long periods of time. It's rarely immediate, like suddenly a step function where it right before it was zero and right afterwards, it's like a 60% change. That's not how institutions who are largely of good faith, um, um, you know, are going to change immediately. But I think over the long term, I believe that these kinds of, uh, again, structural redesigns have significant consequences on just designing a fairer um, learning and work environment, which necessarily means that, again, the injustices and inequalities will decrease over time. So uh, the, our last question here is one we would like to that we do like to ask each of our guests. Um, and if you could answer thinking particularly about our our white listeners, what can they do? We think about the average white person, a well-meaning white person looking to make a difference, looking to build equity in their community, uh, in their neighborhood, in their workspace, maybe just in their group of friends. Does it take these, you know, internal structural changes for them um, or these light bulb moments that they need to have before they're, they're able to act and, and sort of start to make that change within themselves? What advice would you give them? What actions would you have them take to start doing the work? Yeah, um, yeah that's a great question. I, I, I would suggest a couple of things. Number one, I think... Um, and it's, you know, it's a recommendation I often make. Uh, uh, one is I, I, to be humble. Um, now, um, I often make this recommendation when I talk to, like, you know, Article Three judges, CEOs, uh, you know, finance professors. And my wife repeatedly tells me, Jerry, don't ask people to be humble. Like, you don't come off as humble. It's <laughs> not right. Like, no one's going to be – don't do that. Um, and I have to remind myself exactly um, that as well. But – uh, for various reasons, I think this nation right now requires people of good faith, people who are blessed with a mind, uh, to remain humble, uh, to just recognize 
we know so little about everything, including ourselves. And I think it's just that uh, humility that opens the door in genuine ways. Not, I don't mean in like weird virtue signaling ways where we have to overperform a certain kind of uh, po political allyship that doesn't mean anything except like and subscribe. I, I mean like a certain kind of genuine humility. So number two, one way to do that is to like, if you've never taken uh, the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, I would just go to projectimplicit.org um, and just take uh, some of these tests. Like you don't have to take the ones that will freak you out immediately, like race. You know, you, you know, you can start with I don't know age. There's sometimes political candidates. You know, sometimes they have consumer brands. Just figure out what this hey. thing is. If the first time you take it, it's gonna be like I have no idea what they're doing. I'm just hitting keys as quickly as possible in response to pictures being flashed at me. Um, but like warm up to some stuff that you just might want to know about. Like, do I prefer you know uh, white people over black people? Is it just easier in some weird asymmetrical way to associate good words with white faces compared to um, black faces. And again, if that's too charged for you, you can pick others. There's usually at any given time, you know, 15 different tests online that you can do. It's completely anonymous. And hey, I don't, you know, it, it's not telling you everything. Your explicit commitments, political commitments are just as important as your implicit baggage. But I think that's one way that's useful to kind of explore your humility. Like you might not be all that. Uh, and uh, even <laughs> though you want to be, it's, it's just important for all of us to know that uh, we're great. Mama loved us, but we're not perfect. Um, and that's the first point about being humble. Number, number two is even though it's at an individual level, um, I encourage people to kind of uh, count some things and curate your own experiences. What do I mean by count some things? Like, if I just ask you, what are the last five people you've had over for dinner? And just on the back of a napkin, just write it down. I realize COVID's a thing. We're hopefully <laughs> not having anyone for dinner. Uh, uh, but back in the day when we had, and, and again, many of your listeners are so busy, maybe you didn't have anyone for dinner. Uh, you barely <laughs> went home for dinner yourself. But back in the day when you had dinners, like who are the last five people you asked over? And what do they look like? Are they, you know, are they the same race? Are they the same religion? Are they the same class, right? And if you find out that they all kind of fit a certain pattern, and we shouldn't be surprised by it, given the fact that our, our neighborhoods are kind of segregated, at least by race, um, you got to ask yourself what that means. Because the way these implicit uh, associations get built up are through direct as well as vicarious experiences. And when you count, when you just list some things, you sometimes uh, you know, can get diagnostic information. Oh, here are the last five people I invited over for dinner. Here's another question, like in the work, workplace, who are the last five people you kind of went to bat for, where you put skin in the game for a sponsorship, for a promotion, for a recommendation, where it wasn't a slam dunk easy case. If it's an easy case and you spent no political capital, well, whoopee, anyone can do that. But where it was on the edge of something, but you fought for someone, or you actually argued in favor of an opportunity for someone, one. Who are those five people? And just write those names. And again, it might be that they're exactly the right people to both invite over, over for dinner and frankly to, you know, to have sponsored or, or pushed for in the workplace. But if they all fit a certain kind of pattern, especially if those attributes look a lot like you, uh, you got to wonder whether that's entirely random. And and that's part of kind of the counting exercise that, that might keep us humble. Um, 
the other thing connected with when I say curate your experiences is that if you're a little concerned about what those lists look like, hey, you're the you know you're the author of your own novel. You're you're the master of your domain. You can decide <laughs> to change what your world looks like. If you decide you're going to watch a little bit different kinds of TV, explore different kinds of book, find out ways to meet different kinds of people, at least of a different class, if not uh, you know a different race or religion. There are ways to do that. And if you think, to, no, no, I'll just go by default and go on my own autopilot, you're just going to replicate what you've done in the past. And so I encourage people to curate their experiences that way. And I guess the, the third part that is uh, – the third example I'll give that goes beyond the individual to the more institutional. If you learn a little bit more and you think that implicit bias uh, might be actually tweaking your decision-making and your institution's decision-making in the wrong direction a little bit – it might be just useful to go into your institution and just ask uh, of yourself two questions like where in the whole environment, whether it's initial hiring, how work is assigned, how performance evaluations are given, how promotions are given, how dinner companions are selected, where in that whole slew of things is implicit bias most likely to actually get in the way? Just just do a, do a diagnosis by yourself, right? Hmm. And then second, brainstorm one possible solution that might actually counter uh, that implicit bias. Uh, and take those two things to HR or an executive or a friend that you trust and see if you can start a conversation within your own institution, bubbling it up if it does not already come uh, top down. Those are, I guess, three clusters of things. Be humble. Uh, second is count and curate your experiences. Uh, and third is, again, ask these diagnostic questions and brainstorming questions in your institution and then pair up with a buddy or a sponsor or someone else and see if people agree and see if you can bubble up brainstorming ideas to make your work a fairer place to be. Wow. So we, you know, we normally at the end of our, of each episode after, uh, after our interviews, April and I give a, uh, an action item to our listeners. Um, April, I don't know about you, but I think we can forego the action item for this episode because I think so. <laughs> of what was just laid out so smoothly and perfectly. Jerry, we, we appreciate that from you and we hope to have you back. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I hope your uh, listeners uh, get something out of this uh, really interesting conversation. This episode of Black Anne was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Anne wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and, and keep, keep asking, asking questions. questions.